And I would say it probably took me seven or eight years before I was willing to be vulnerable because the world is not a safe place. Hello, welcome to The Seasoned RD, a podcast connecting newer professionals in the field of eating disorders to those of us who have been around for a while. I'm your host, Beth Harrell, a certified eating disorders registered dietitian and supervisor. And I'm Abby Brown, a registered dietitian who is newer to the field. I think of myself as a well-seasoned cast iron skillet with wisdom and experience, yet always ready for something new. And I think of myself as an Instapot with innovation and a fresh perspective. This podcast brings both to the table to share ingredients, recipes, and techniques of past and present so we can all be our best for the future. The kettle is heating up. The skillet is on simmer. So join us around the table for true professional nourishment. Abby, ready to stir the pot? Let's do it. Welcome to this episode of The Seasoned RD, where we are meeting with Jessica Setnick, a certified eating disorders registered dietitian and supervisor. And Jessica's been a resource for so many of us in the field, and today she shares a lot with us, like her secret identity, why she thinks that supervision for EDRDs is the best, how to feel confident for the RD exam, even when you're locked out, how long it took her to be able to be vulnerable in supervision. And I only share this because her experience is not uncommon. You may be feeling in a similar way, getting into a group and actually talking about how you're operating in your office with your clients, something that RDs aren't used to doing. Part of what she says is sitting back and listening for a while is just as good. And another guest that we had interviewed on this podcast said the same thing. So putting yourself into supervision first and being able to listen if you're not ready to share and understanding that it can be intimidating for most of us to be able to share in supervision. She also talks a little bit about the countertransference that she had to bring to her supervision group that included a psychologist. So really her background and her evolution really included aligning with excellent psychologists and psychiatrists on a regular basis. So for for RDs who are looking to be in this field or wanting to stay in this field of eating disorders, attending therapy-focused continuing educations is super important. So although the best place to find everything about her is at jessicasetnick.com, I personally wanted to highlight a recommendation, first stop for dietitians, which is the IFED listserv, the links in the show notes. And then one of the newest resources if you're looking for work within the field is eatingdisordersjobs.com. Welcome. We are here today with Jessica Setnick, the Jessica Setnick, and we are so glad that you joined us. We know you're really busy and that you have a lot to share. So this is going to be really uh, just touching base on what your path within the field of eating disorders has been. This podcast is the seasoned RD, but it's also for any professional in the field of eating disorders, how we learned, how we stay current, what we know and what we offer for the field. So Abby. Yes. So I'm trying, I'm sitting over here trying not to fangirl too hard over you, Jessica. You're like (laughs) one of my top idols in the eating disorder world. So this is an amazing moment for me. But my question for you now is, do you prefer beach or mountains? Oh, it's no contest. Beach, 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 beach. Yes. I kind of assumed that would be your choice with you, really? you know, living, living in the South. Yeah, I knew that I figured you liked the warm weather. So, well, I, 
you fit, you figured you had the right answer, but you figured it wrong. I have a secret identity that most people don't know. I was born in American Samoa. So it's a very small island. So I was basically born on the beach, walked on the beach, didn't wear shoes until I was four years old. So oh my gosh. I'm a beach baby. Okay. And then second question. Do you prefer breakfast or dinner? I prefer breakfast for dinner. Yes, there we go. I can definitely get behind that. <laughs> Audiobook or paper book? Paper book. My, my mom's a librarian. I've got oh. a stack of books right here next to my bed. Um, <laughs> oh, yeah. Absolutely oh paper book. Yeah. Although, although when, when traveling internationally, Kindle. Um, mm-hmm. Because, you know, for instant gratification, also Kindle. Like if I'm reading in the newspaper about a book, and then I can like just go online and get the the intro or the sample on my Kindle. Love that. Yeah. So speaking of books, this is kind of off the cuff question. How many books have you written? A few. So the obvious ones are the Eating Disorders Clinical Pocket Guide, which has had two editions, and then the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics Pocket Guide to Eating Disorders, which has had two editions. But then I also wrote these lesser known books called the Eating Disorder Book of Hope and Healing the Recovery Book of Hope and Healing, the Survivor Book of Hope and Healing. I wrote those books with two co-authors about 10 or 15 years ago. Mm-hmm. I don't know how many that totals, but I, I also wrote a dietitian's guide to professional speaking. Yeah. So a few, not as many yeah. as Joe Peterson, but <laughs> yeah, quite a few, much more than Abby and I put together. So yeah. <laughs> all well, right. when you decide well, you're ready to write your book, I'll tell you my secret method. My upcoming book is called The Sleepless Dietitian's Big Book of Answers, Cures for the Questions That Keep You Up at Night. And it's a compilation of all the Q's and A's I've done, like when people posted on Facebook and I answered their question or during supervision, I have some of my supervision calls are recorded and then I trans- have them transcribed and then those Q&As are going in the book. It's awesome. It's just impossible to rip the Band-Aid and say the book is finished because I just keep adding to it. But I, I just keep it. Myself. I, I can have multiple volumes. There can be part one, part two, part three. And so I actually did an A to Z list of like subtitles. So the Sleepless Dietitian's Big Book of Answers, A might be like, answers for the anxieties that keep you up at night and B might be benefits for the bothers that keep you up at night. I love it. Those aren't my best. That's not my best work. I'm not looking at <laughs> it right now, but it just was a way to remind myself that I could have up to 26 volumes and I could just go through the alphabet. I love it. Okay. So what got you interested in the profession of eating disorders? How did you start as a dietitian? And I actually, before I ask you that, can I, I'm going to maybe, hopefully not too traumatizing to ask you this question. I'm going to take you back to your exam day when you were taking the RD exam. What do you remember? (laughs) Were you a number two? No, I'm not joking. (laughs) Number two pencil or a keyboard and anything that you remember about that day. Okay. Well, let me set the stage for you, (laughs) especially anyone listening who was not from the paper and pencil era. What you may not know is not only was the test paper and pencil, the test was only administered two times a year, April and October. So not only were you going to take the exam to become an RD or not, your job was on the line because 
let's say you graduated in December. You started in January. You were working from January to May without a license, which meant that every single day you worked in your hospital, you had to keep the list of all the charts, all the patients you saw, and a dietitian, they basically would like flip a coin to see who had to go around at the end of the day, review all your notes and countersign them because you didn't have a license. So after that, if you didn't pass the RD exam, you were fired because nobody was going to do that for another six months while you waited till the next opportunity to take the RD exam. So it wasn't just pass or fail the RD exam. It was get fired from your job. I had forgotten about that. That's the amount of stress you were under. Okay. Part two is I drove to the RD exam and promptly locked my keys in my car. So this was an era where you could still do that. I don't even think you can lock your keys in your car anymore. But I locked my keys in my car. And I remember my friend Karen Geismar was in the parking lot with me. She walked up and she's like, hey, and we were going to go into the exam together. And I was like, I just locked my keys in my car. She's like, (laughs) pull yourself together, Jessica. You're going to have to deal with that after the exam. And I just completely compartmentalized and just like smushed that out of my mind and just move on. (laughs) Like, I will figure that out after the exam. So then I went into the RD exam, super stressed out for all these reasons. And the most amazing thing happened that helped me relax. I just kept hearing my internship director in my mind saying X percent of people like fail the RD exam on their first try or something like that. And so that's what's in my mind, along with all this other stress. And then they start talking to us about, you know, just that standardized test stuff, right? Like, color in the bubble, you know, put in your last name, put in your first name, use a dark mark, whatever. And someone raises their hand and says, basically, like, they don't understand how to fill in the bubbles or something. And I'm like, oh, my God, they're going to fail the RD. <laughs> I was like, they're the percent right there. I'm going to be fine. <laughs> and that's how it broke all the tension. Like, the fact that someone was already having trouble, we hadn't even gotten to question one yet, somehow made me feel so much better. <laughs> That's awesome. Thank you. So I'm glad that we took you back to memory lane because it brought me back too. All right. So yeah, how'd you get into the field of eating disorders and as a dietitian in general? Well, I started out in college not knowing what I wanted to do, but knowing that I wanted to be a CEO of something. And so I had basically no direction. I didn't have good enough grades to go into business school. And so I just started taking classes that were sort of fulfill your general requirements. And the one they sort of did, started to sort of cluster together in the anthropology department. I ended up with basically like halfway to a degree in anthropology before I knew it. I ended up taking nutrition as an elective and I loved it. And there was no nutrition major. So I basically patched together a curriculum of anthropology and whatever nutrition classes were available through the nursing school. So when I took nutrition for fitness, I fell in love with sports nutrition. I thought it would be great to be a sports dietitian. Well, it wasn't called a sports dietitian back then. It was called a sports nutritionist. And so I went to grad school for that. My goal was to be the nutritionist for the Dallas Cowboys, which was not even a job at that time. (laughs) Young. And I actually have the same fighting spirit I still have today, which is that just because a job doesn't exist doesn't mean I can't go get it or make it. And so that was my plan. But but once I got to grad school for sports nutrition, one of my professors said, I think for what you want to do, you have to become an RD. And I was like, what is this RD you speak of? And then I saw how much schooling I was going to have to do to get that. And I 
buckled down and did it. And while I was doing it, what I realized is all those things that I loved about anthropology, so the human development and, uh, you know, the cultures and the sort of linguistics and the way we use words and the way we make choices and the way our choices influence our culture and our next generations and the generations behind us influence us, all that, the only area that that was really kosher to talk about in, in dietetics was eating disorders. Even though I feel like all of those things are super important in whatever area of dietetics you practice in, it doesn't matter because those things are super important. You know, 25 years ago when I was going through school and, and possibly still a bit now, that was eating disorders was really the place where the psychology of eating and the behavior of eating was really taking place. And so that's how I transitioned over to the love of eating disorders work. And then my first job was in a children's hospital here that was just starting an eating disorder program. And so that really got my dream job right off the bat. And the rest is history. Awesome. Well, how did you learn what you learned along the way? I imagine when you first started, there weren't a lot of resources for eating disorder dietitians. True. So the first thing would be my team that I worked with. I worked with excellent psychologists, psychiatrists, and it was a teaching hospital. So even though I was an actual staff person with a job, there was a lot of that sort of teaching modality kind of going on because there were always psychiatry residents and fellows coming through and psychology fellows coming through and even dietetic interns coming through. So teaching was sort of a vibe there, let's say. So the fact that, you know, I was sort of getting paid to learn in a sense, and that was a really amazing, amazing experience. Francie White was doing workshops at that time. I learned a ton from Francie White. And SCAN, oddly enough, was actually the home of eating disorders in the academy at that time. It was still called ADA. And SCAN was sports cardiovascular and wellness nutritionist. But at some point, the idea had been approached. I think Karen Cretino was one of the, the, the leaders of that movement to get an eating disorder DPG. And we was told that that wasn't going to happen. So find a home in another DPG. And SCAN had absorb eating disorders. And so actually I was invited to speak at a scan conference. And the first one I went to was just, it was the theme every third year, the theme of the scan symposium would be eating disorders. And so it was an eating disorder year and it was just absolutely spellbinding, groundbreaking. There was a petition that went around to say, we don't want slim fast to be a sponsor of this presentation. Marilyn Wan, who wrote fat. So she was like a groundbreaking fat activist. She spoke, Susan Woolley spoke on the myth of objectivity and how all of medicine is super biased. It's baked into the sort of the, the white male sort of European model of medicine that, that we've adopted in this country. I mean, it was, I, I think back and I think that was probably in 1998. I was wondering. Those concepts are still groundbreaking now. It's so sad that we haven't advanced much as a society, but but that was all just so eye-opening. And then I would also add the Renfrew conference I found was a very strong one. I would go to that a lot of times because, and they had a nutritionist track, but I would usually bail on the nutritionist track and go to the sessions that were for therapists because mm. that's where I learned about traumatic events. That's where I learned about obsessive compulsive disorder and those kind of things. And so I, I sort of, at some point, maybe stopped going to a lot of dietitian focused continuing education and gratefully to our profession, we are allowed to attend things and get continuing education credit for going to things that are not targeted toward dietitians. So I joined a lot of the therapist 
sort of educational groups in Dallas and just continued to learn through that. Always. Yeah, oh, for sure. I, I think that was one of the first times I met you was at a rum fruit conference because when I was in private practice, I would save my dollars. It was expensive um, to go. And so I couldn't go. Up, I, I don't know. It was every two to four years that I would save my dollars and go. And then they would have a little section for dietitians to actually meet up kind of a breakfast. The and networking breakfast. The networking breakfast. Yeah. But I am like you where I would attend a lot of the therapy sessions because we're not taught that in undergrad. I mean, we can give anybody a meal plan, but that's not what eating disorders is about. So thank you for bringing that up. And Francie White and Kara Cretina were also both important in my formation. So and Anita Johnston. Anita Johnston's eating in the light. She and Carolyn Costin started doing workshops with Francie White. And that, that trio is a powerhouse. Anita, Carolyn, Francie is an amazing workshop. If you ever get the opportunity to go do they still have it? I think so. I think oh. they're getting ready to, to sort of re revisit, revamp, revive after COVID. Awesome. Well, that's something we need to look out for because, again, this podcast really is for people coming into the field and kind of helping us all know what we don't know and how to grow and what dietitians can do, what therapists can do, doctors, other medical providers. You know what? I thought of one other thing that was really crucial to my learning. It was an eating disorder dietitian support group here in Dallas. And so we would meet once a month, probably for 10 years or more. And after we ran out of things to say to each other, we hired a psychologist to sit in and supervise us. And that was crucial. I mean, once a month, knowing I, in the middle of a day, if something was going completely bonkers, to know that, okay, I, I have a meeting coming up on Thursday, I can talk about this, would sometimes get me through the next week, knowing that there was going to be a safe place I could talk about that. And having that outside person, you know, to sort of share my stuff. And I would say it probably took me seven or eight years before I was willing to be vulnerable because the world is not a safe place sometimes for me. It doesn't feel safe. And so I would just, you know, go into that group and just listen for a lot of years. But eventually I felt comfortable saying things. And, and some of the things that I share with my supervisees on a daily basis are things that I learned from that psychologist who was he had been a trainee at the hospital when I worked there. That's how I knew him. And he wasn't necessarily a specialist in eating disorders. That wasn't even the issue. It was sort of the interpersonal dynamics. And, you know, when I felt like I had done something wrong, you know, he's the one that helped me come up with the motto that I share with all my supervisees, which is that, you know, bad situations feel bad, but it doesn't mean you did something wrong. And, you know, all kinds of different lessons I learned from that. So I had kind of forgotten that just because eventually that group dissolved. There were only two people left. And he kept saying, two people is not a group. And <laughs> me and Carol Park kept saying, can we pay more? Will that make it a group? But <laughs> eventually we just made it. But there were therapists and dietitians in that group. And probably over the course of 15 years, I went every single month. And that was, so I don't want to forget to mention that that was a huge source of learning too. And so through this supervision that you were doing, well, yeah, this group supervision, is that what encouraged you to become a supervisor? No. <laughs> Do you want to know how I? Yes, please, please share with us. How, how did you get into supervision or as supervisor? Well, I, I, people were always asking me questions from the very beginning. And I've told this story before, um, but I'll tell it again, because 
it's another walk down memory lane for, you know, millennials to learn what a dinosaur I am. (laughs) When I became a dietitian was the dawn of the internet. And so there was no Google, there was nowhere to go to find answers, but it, it was, it brought us this beautiful thing called the ADA listserv. There was one listserv for all the dietitians in the entire academy. What would happen is you would, in the morning, you would go look at your census. And if you had any questions, you would type something in. And so people would go say, okay, I'm a dietitian in Iowa. I work at a general hospital and there's a 12 year old with anorexia on my census. Can someone tell me what to do? And this was amazing because before that, if you were a dietitian in Iowa with the random patient with anorexia on your census, the way you would get help is you would literally have to call information, like call the operator. I could have the phone number for that other hospital in Iowa. You'd call the other hospital in Iowa. They would say, you know, hello, Iowa hospital. And you'd say, can I speak with the nutrition department? They transfer you to the nutrition department secretary. You'd say, hi, this is who I am. Are there any dietitians in your hospital that know anything about eating disorders? And they'd say, nope, no clue. And you'd hang up and you'd start the whole process again. And you'd call the next hospital in Iowa or Idaho or Nebraska or whatever. And you just keep trying to find someone who could help you. There was no book on it. There was no Google. So the listserv was this amazing new invention because you could type this question in the morning, come down at lunchtime and someone somewhere in the United States, probably me, would have typed an answer that says, don't panic. Here's what you need to do. Call me if you have questions. And so this listserv format became this amazing tool of communication among dietitians. And so I became sort of known as someone you could ask questions and I didn't mind. I didn't think of it as extra work or unpaid work or, you know, just we didn't sort of think of that concept, I guess, at that time. It was just sort of helping out colleagues. Over time, I became known as an expert and, you know, I would take on interns and I would, you know, just try to share my knowledge as much as I could with other dietitians. And so over time, people would call and I'd start just, you know, doing like sort of a paid consultation with people, you know, they'd say, I don't want to impose on your time. And I'd say, well, you know, this is what I charge for an hour of patient care. You can pay me for an hour of, you know, dietitian care. I don't even know if we called it supervision at that time. Mm -hmm. That was more of a therapy term. Um, We mostly just called it sort of consultation. It's, it, it really just became organic. Then when the CEDRD came in, it really, and, and required supervision, that's when I feel like it was really a huge gift to the dietetics profession because it sort of formalized the idea that supervision was an important part of our, our work. And so we have, you know, for someone who didn't have a group of eating disorder dietitians in their city that they could meet with once a month, this was really an opportunity, you know, to have that those conversations. Oh, I'm thinking of a a dietitian in New York, I won't name her name, although I remember who she is because she's wonderful, but I don't want to out her group members, but she was in a group and she called me and she said, could I schedule a call? Or she emailed me, could I schedule a call with you? I think I need some advice that my supervision group can't really provide. And when we were on the phone, I said, what's the situation? And she said, well, we were talking about this patient with an eating disorder who was pregnant. And I said to the person who was asking the questions, I said, well, have you talked with her about, you know, why she might be motivated for recovery? Like, does her pregnancy give her a motivation to recover? And all the other dietitians said, Ooh, good one. (laughs) I think, I think maybe we're not on the right, on the same level. And so, you know, it was that kind of thing where dietitians in other areas who just didn't have a group of peers would kind of seek me out. And then the CEDRD just sort of made it sort of a formal process 
where, you know, we actually kept track of the dates and, you know, that kind of thing and give CEU credit for people who do supervision and that kind of stuff. So that the, the official CEDRDS evolved over time, but the supervision was going on, you know, even before that. Yeah. And well back when you were talking about that team, that that is what and one thing I loved and I think we connected about Jessica was I had been sort of raised around the therapy, the dietitian all sitting in the same room and doing peer consultation. And every now and then we were lucky enough to have a psychiatrist uh, that we trusted come in and do some of these case consults. But we have to learn, we're not taught this in school and we're definitely not taught it as dietitians. And when you said supervision is more of a therapy term, it really is. We have to explain to people what we mean by supervision, which is really, it's consultation. But the difference between case consultation and supervision is that that your supervisor can help you see those blind spots, kind of like you said about the pregnant, you know, that example of it's not just A plus B equals C. It's I've got a human right across here. What are my reactions in the room? What are their reactions in the room? Are there any transference? What do we get? Because the, the case study for the CEDRD, and I'm not talking about supervision for the CEDRD. I'm talking about supervision. You and I were in it well before we even knew about certification. So this is just a, a growth of professional development but just understanding what we don't know. So the case study for CEDRD, the last part of it is what was your personal reaction? And sometimes people, especially dietitians who haven't been doing supervision over time with, you know, including therapy is, is it okay for me to say that I was triggered or activated by this person and their situation? It reminded me of my whatever, or, you know, those are the things that bring the human, the human piece to it, which also I love your anthropology background. Some of my favorite people in the field have an anthropology background. I've, I'm noticing that. I don't know why it's just coming up more. So the group being together with therapists, collaboration with medical providers, that is so, so great. I agree. And one of the things that was really crucial for me in learning is that every Tuesday while I worked in the hospital, I would do evaluations with Dr. Waller, the the attending psychiatrist. And so seeing how he would react to certain things and just being able to talk with him about things really helped. I mean, he was really quite a leader and that was a really lucky opportunity for me to Mm -hmm. get to learn from him. And I do think that there, there are so many benefits from that interprofessional communication. And I do try to share those same things that I learned with my supervisees. I'm really glad you brought up counter-transference or transference because I was just writing for my website what I my take on supervision is for the CEDRD. You know, what is it? And I feel like it's not just notes and bolts of being a dietitian because that's, of course, part of it, but it's also that counter-transference piece that sort of helps you become a better human and a better nutrition counselor. Um, and just one small example is once I saw this young man with, uh, um, he was diagnosed with anorexia and he wanted to become a professional runner and his family did not want that. They didn't even understand that professional runner could even be a job and they wanted him to go to medical school. And so anyway, when his recovery sort of, at least the part with me was coming to an end because he was going to college. I said, you know, until you get situated with another dietitian, you know, you can always 
call me, you know, and these are the reasons to schedule an appointment when you're back in town. And I kind of listed several reasons, nutrition related reasons that he would come back to see me. And he said, or could I call you if I just want to talk? And I remember taking that to my supervision group and saying, I felt like Mary Kay Letourneau. And that is just going to be a name from the past for people my age, but younger people are not even going to know who that is. But before it was like a common thing that like a teacher and a student would have an affair. Mary Kay Letourneau was the very first teacher who became, I mean, sure it happened before, but it wasn't publicized, but she was actually, it was publicized that she became pregnant with one of her students' babies. And she was like on the stand pregnant in this trial. I just remember that so clearly. Anyway, so when I say I felt like Mary Kay Letourneau, what I mean is I felt like had I somehow accidentally, I'm sure hers wasn't an accident, but in my mind, had I accidentally seduced this young man? Did I wear a shirt that was too low cut? Had I leaned in too close? Like, how had I somehow made him think that he could just call me to talk? Like, what, did he mean like a date? Like, yeah. <laughs> and I felt so guilty over that and ashamed. And when I took it to my supervision, the psychologist just very simply said, you know, based on what you've told us about this young man, is it possible that you may just be the only person in his life who listens to him? Right. He just swept away kind of all of my concerns by basically saying like, you're entitled to feel however you feel, but as an outside person, that's not what I see. Yeah. It's not pathologizing things. It's helping you see the you as a human, him as a human, the situation. Yes. And it was just, I feel like that's sort of my perfect example of counter-transference and, and how a supervisor can help you see it. This is all about you and you're allowed to feel how you feel, but you don't have to feel like you've done something wrong. I mean, it's always okay to look within and say, did I do anything wrong? Did I do anything differently with this young man than I would have with anyone else? You know, you know, if you're, I don't know, having sort of romantic ideas about a patient, that's something to talk about. But in this case, it wasn't that at all. I felt really good about my work with this patient. And then it was all ruined in one minute by you know, that comment that he made making, you know, and he wasn't certainly wasn't trying to shame me, but, you know, it was my inner whatever, you know, rearing up. And it just, I just feel like it's so helpful to have an outside pair of eyes, look at the things, but you have to be in a safe place because you can't just meet someone for the first time. Be like, Hey, Abby, this voice said he's going to call me whenever, whenever he needs to talk. That's weird. Right. You know, like you, you have to be in a safe place where people already know you, you and know you know, that this is an unusual scenario or know enough about you, you know, or even have heard about the patient situation before, you know, to be able to say, based on what you've told us in the past about this particular patient, you know, that kind of stuff. It's just, there's no dollar value that you can put on your peace of mind when someone else can sort of, you know, reach in and reassure you, or even just ask, maybe they can't reassure you, but ask you the questions that help you figure something out. It's just, it's that whole saying you can't solve a problem with the same mind that created it. And it's just, which by the way, Einstein, I think said that, not me, <laughs> but I just, I can't talk about supervision enough. I just think it's the best. It's so important. And so with you being not only an expert in eating disorders, but in supervision and, you know, being in supervision before it was even called supervision, we, we really want through this podcast for other healthcare professionals. So physicians, physical therapists, personal trainers, so on to have access 
to, you know, this eating disorder information. So, I mean, I'm sure a lot of them do not have time to go through supervision, but what would you suggest could be an alternative for these individuals who want to learn, but don't necessarily have all of the time to do a full supervision? What would a resource be for them? Well, I think eating disorders boot camp is essentially supervision in recorded form. Mm-hmm. You know, there's three recorded workshops and you know, if you're not a dietitian, you don't even have to listen to all the parts because you're not worrying about getting CEUs. So anyone, a personal trainer, a doctor, a nurse, therapist could listen to the parts that they wanted to out of, you know, eating disorders boot camp, advanced boot camp and eating disorders boot camp next generation and you know, you download it, it lives in the cloud and you download it to your own device or computer and you can listen to it anytime you want, any number of times you want. So people tell me they go for a jog listening to it. They listen to it in their car, driving to and from work. I think that might be a way to multitask and and use some, you know, potentially unused time, mm-hmm. is, you know, while listening to, to that. I love I that. Have, that would be my Yeah. I have, I have a funny story about your boot camp CDs. So when I was interning, Liz Marshall had your boot camp CDs and she gave them to me and said, you should listen to this. You know, Jessica Setnick is amazing. So I'm so excited. And I toss it into my old CD player, my car, and it didn't work, but something is wrong with my CD player. And I was so sad, but since then I have found other ways to listen to it. Um, and so yeah, MP3s now. Yeah. It's It's like, like the eight track of, of our day. (laughs) Oh my God. I mean, when I think about that, y'all seriously, that's one of those things that it's, it's so amazing how technology has advanced, but it's also a lesson in like having an idea and just doing it. I mean, I remember the first boot camps, I just sat on the floor with my intern and we Xeroxed the pages and then we stuck them in three ring binders. And then when I decided to do the recording, I hired someone to edit it. And then we had it burned on CDs by this company. We had a graphic designer design the CD labels. And then Selena and I would sit on the floor with interns and we would stick the CDs into CD cases. And then we would (laughs) you know, shrink wrap it and put it in the mail. I mean, it's just, like I said, the advancement of the technology is an amazing thing, but it's also amazing to think you can just have an idea and implement it and just see how it goes. And it doesn't have to be a big investment of money or time or anything. You can just wish a product into existence. And I just encourage anyone who has an idea not to let other people who don't really get it bring you down or discourage you from absolutely and uh, back to your boot camp I have an intern that was working with us um ready to take her RD exam but she was just wrapping up a couple weeks ago and she was listening to your boot camp and she her book like the notes that she was going over with me and I'm like oh yeah thank you for reminding me of that and then and oh I hadn't really remembered it put that way or heard it put that way so no matter how long or short you've been in the field I think that your boot camp can be a really great just refresher too thanks well and if anyone listening wants to check it out just go to eatingdisordersbootcamp.com and voila there's the info perfect So this is kind of a loaded question, but if you were to take yourself back to entering the field of eating disorders, what do you wish you would have known then that you know now? Wow. This is so hard because I feel like I had a good sense of 
self-esteem and self-worth as a dietitian. Like my first job I was offered, I actually said, why would I take that job? I get paid more than that as a secretary part-time during grad school. So I, it's not about, wouldn't be about self-worth. I think maybe that I did believe at the beginning of my career that at the top of every organization is some like benevolent old man sitting in a throne with a beard. And if you could just find the right person, then they would say, oh, thank you so much for bringing these problems to my attention. I'm going to fix all the problems in the organization. And I think that was, a, I, I wish I had known that, that that an organization has so many moving parts and no one is accountable, whether it's an insurance company or a hospital or an eating disorder facility, everyone can pass the buck. There's always someone else that, oh, the investors or the equity firm or that kind of thing. And that, I guess I always knew I would end up working for myself, but maybe if I had, if I had, I don't know if it's, you could say wasted less time, but sort of the idea that, that everyone in a system is really trying to make it better. I just really, I, I believe the story that like, if you show up and go to work and do your best, then you get promoted and think, you know, just that sort of institutional kind of inertia or something like that. I wish I had understood sort of the business world better, you know, because to me, it doesn't make sense. Why does a hospital have 40 VPs and two Spanish language translators? Like if you could manage your hospital with only 39 VPs, somehow, I don't know how you would muddle through with only 39, but for that one VP salary, you could probably hire 10 different language translators, right? I mean, who wants to be on a, on a phone translation service when they find out that their child didn't make it through heart surgery? Mm. So the things that we think of as important are so distinct from what maybe an administrator thinks is important or just the separation between levels of people who are actually doing the work versus people who are sort of in charge of decisions. I just, I felt like that was such a rude awakening. And when I finally realized it and I wish someone could have prepared me for it better, but then I, I guess it's hard to wish because I don't know how knowing that information at the beginning might've changed the course of my career. And I don't want anything to have been different, but you know, I, I know that every time I've been sort of laid off or written up for speaking truth to power, it felt really bad, but eventually it became clear that that wasn't the right place for me to be. And so I would say I learned and grew through all those experiences. So I guess that's why it's such a hard question for me to answer because, you know, you say, what do you wish was different? And I've really loved my career, but so I don't wish anything was different, but I do think that that would have maybe led to a little bit, I would have recognized sooner when a place was not the right place for me rather than trying to, you know, thinking if I can just say this message in a different way, the powers that be will understand it and will want to change it because it would be the right thing to do. Oh my gosh, Jessica, this is so timely. I I mean, my history, so this is connecting with me in so many different ways, but just most recently when I'm, I found that when I'm across from my client, that's where I'm home. It's, I, I'm not relying on the systems or the red tape or the different, you know, I've worked at a children's hospital in a nutrition department. I've worked as a clinical dietitian. I was a dietetic internship director. I was the director of certification. All of these areas reported to different structures and those are organizations. And like, I, it just resonated with me so much that find for you what is the right thing for you and not relying on, on the goodness of the others within it's, it's finding what's right for you. 
And then Jessica, how can we get a hold of you? How can everybody see what you are up to? Are you on social media platforms or specific websites that you have? We would love for you to share that. Absolutely. So I'll give you all the links, but the easiest place is jessicasetnick.com. That's sort of the umbrella site that from there you can branch off into almost everything that I'm doing, supervision, eating disorders, boot camp. One other thing that we haven't mentioned is eatingdisorderjobs.com is a website that I run. It's, I haven't figured out how to make a dime from it. So it's basically a nonprofit, but I don't care because I think it's so valuable. And so we do have job postings on eatingdisorderjobs.com, but the bulk of the content is actually advice from the experts. And we profile many different individuals who work in the eating disorder field in different roles and ask them what is their advice to someone new in the field or aspiring to join the field. So there's lots of great information there at eatingdisorderjobs.com. And if you are someone who's been in the field that's listening to this, we'd love to interview you for that. Dietitianspeakers.com is another website where there are interviews with experienced dietitian speakers, if that's up your alley, or if you're looking for a dietitian speaker. And then my email address, jessica at jessicasetnik.com. I'm easy to find, and I'd be happy to answer questions or point someone in the right direction. So IFED is the nonprofit I started in 2012. We now have 800 eating disorder dietitian members and some student members. And anyone who is a nutrition professional anywhere in the world that is aspiring to work with individuals with eating disorders or who does or who does part-time, any students, you're all welcome to join. It's, it's not expensive. It's $25 for a dietitian and it's $10 for a student until you become a dietitian. But if money cost is a barrier, we waive it freely for anyone who asks. So I fed the email, or sorry, the website is ifedd.com, International Federation Eating Disorder Dietitians, IFEDD. And we have a treatment finder and member resources and a very active listserv. And it's just a great community of eating disorder dietitians. Whether you work with 10 eating disorder dietitians or you're completely isolated, we welcome you to join us. We advocate strongly for insurance coverage of eating disorders nutrition counseling. We have a talk coming up with an attorney who specifically works in that area. We just do everything we can to support access to our services. And I'll just add that in all of my websites and all of my work, I'm, I'm really trying to make it clear that the stereotype of who gets eating disorders, of who works in the eating disorder field has always been false, but unfortunately has been promoted. And so if you are an individual who holds a historically underrepresented in the eating disorder field identity, eatingdisorderjobs.com is starting a monthly Instagram live called the hug group, which stands for historically underrepresented groups. And we just really want to, we don't want to not, we don't want to make it sound like the eating disorder field is the easiest place to be, whether you're in treatment or whether you're working as a provider, if you're from a historically underrepresented group, but we want to amplify your voice and say, this is more of what we need in our field. So please, you know, join us. It's just so important that we have the wealth of knowledge that everyone can bring to our field. We just learn more, you know, when we include everyone. Let's lean on each other and learn from each other so we can grow together as professionals in this field of eating disorders. If you want to connect with me for supervision or membership with monthly content, please find me at bethharrell.com slash professionals.